we have to bring it home where the nurse actually sees herself actually using the nursing process as her way of being in any setting that she may find herself, be it long-term care, acute care, home care, or whatever they will be. So I think that our approach to teaching the nursing process, if we're still doing it, should change. How can we provide the highest quality nursing care to the residents of thousands of long-term care facilities? Let's talk all about it with nurse, author, consultant, and entrepreneur, Sylvia Abekwe, right here on episode 442 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is about you. It's about your personal and professional development, your career in healthcare and nursing, and the system and the big picture. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keep Nation. And if you'd like to help other people find the show, you can always leave a rating and review on Apple or Google or Amazon or Spotify, or just share from any podcast app where you happen to be listening. Share it with someone who you think would appreciate or learn from or enjoy the show. And if you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Even $2 a month really helps keep the show going, helps me record, produce, and advertise the show out there and promote it so more people like you tune in and listen and learn and enjoy. Like I said at the top of the show, we are here with my new friend and colleague, Sylvia Abekwe. She is a nurse and an author, a consultant, an awesome nurse entrepreneur, and she is really motivated and dedicated when it comes to long-term care and making sure people get the right care that they're supposed to. And Sylvia, your recent book is really wonderful. And what motivated you to write such a comprehensive guide for nurses who work in long-term care? Well, um, thank you so much for having me on your show. So to answer your question, um, I've always worked in long-term care um, since I migrated to this country in 1999. I started working as a certified nurse assistant and um, my passion for, um, I started off as a biochemist. So my passion for nursing started when I first started working as a CNA. And there was this uh, resident that really resonated with me. She she became um, a very, very, um, if I could say, good friend of mine. Um, actually, um, writing this book was because I had a very profound experience um, after um my PhD program, I went back into long-term care. And um, two days into my role, I had a very unfortunate incident where one resident accidentally um, hit another resident. And then unfortunately, the resident mm -hmm. did not make it after 24 hours. Um, it's not clear whether that's caused it per se, but that's what happened. And obviously that's really instigated deep investigation by the Department of Public Health at the time. So the facility was walled off as a crime scene um, and with the support of my corporate nurse and the whole corporate team, 
we were able to um, turn things around within the first 10 days. But I wanted to um, change the culture. Just getting into compliance was one thing, but actually making safe care and quality care a culture in the building was another thing. So I realized that there was a lot of gaps in terms of how nurses worked, how they did their work. They, they, they did not really put a lot of emphasis on the implications of their practices, if I can say that. And um, as a result of that incident, I had two of my nurses, unfortunately, who were later called by the board and were in the process of having their licenses revoked. Now, um, I started as part of my, my efforts to change the culture, to start this intense uh, training sessions that I would hold uh, four hours on the weekends and I would bring in staff. I, we usually had a small conference room that would take up to 10 um, staff members. So I would put them in the conference room and I came up with some uh, curriculum to really enlighten them about the regulations, the role and the implications to their practices. And I termed it as a, almost like a leadership kind of training for the average LPNs and the RNs at, in the building at the time. Now, through that uh, program, I was looking for the ideal nurse, right? Some a dream nurse, a nurse that would come in and really would work according to the regulation. That is what every director of nurses aspires to have. And um, so I came up with this content that I was training them on. It really, they really liked it. It brought me new staff members. And so that outline became the book that I currently have in my hands. So I used the outline as a template and I expanded on, on them using real case studies and my own experiences to kind of put together a very um, a comprehensive um, resource that every nurse would benefit and every nurse would be guided to good practice and safe care. Yes. Mm. And the book's called Navigating Long-Term Care, A Practical Approach for Nurses. And so you you had this experience and one of these um residents died unfortunately and it turned into a crime scene i mean that's that's traumatic in and of itself for everybody involved right but then you know moving through your career up to earning your phd i mean you've you've learned so much i mean you're a, you're a nursing scholar um and what do you think it is in terms of long-term care where the gaps have emerged? And why, why is the culture that way? Is, it, is there something about long-term care where nurses don't seem to value or reflect on the nursing process? You know, what's, what's one of the, the kernels of why those issues and gaps exist in the first place? So um, thank you for the question. So the gaps uh, that I see has multiple um, reasons. Um, fact text is multifactorial, it's all one thing. But I can also start from right from academia. So nurses in long-term care have very good intentions. They love the residents and they work hard, but they are not equipped with everything that they need right from school. So in academia, our curriculum is really acute care focused, though a lot of skills are transferable in long-term care. 
it lacks a lot of emphasis in long-term care practice. So when nurses come into long-term care, they don't also receive that in-depth training that you would expect them to receive. And therefore, when they come in, the culture is more of a culture shock than anything. And I'm talking more from also my experience in having worked as a DOM, so I can confidently see that. So what has happened is that because of the intense workload, one nurse could be given as much as 25, depending on where you are, to 40, depending on the shift that you work. So as a night nurse, at some point, I could take care of 40 patients under my care. Uh, it's probably changed to about 30, but that is usually the norm. So because of that, in, an, in, our, in our efforts as director of nurses and leadership to kind of help to streamline the work processes, we have indirectly also caused harm. And why do I say that? Because sometimes it's expedient to have one nurse trained in one task, say admissions, and have that nurse do the admissions so that it can free the other nurses so that they can continue to do their med pass. But in doing that, the long-term effect is that we have made nurses who are not all-rounded and are not able to um, sometimes even do the basic things as taking on an admission. And that can be a very daunting task for them. Also, now leadership has taken on the role of sometimes doing the care plans. So, which you know from practice that that wasn't it. When we were in school, you, the nurse, were able to look at the patient's records, review it, and then come up with your plan of care and implement interventions. And at the end of the day, we were asked to do a thorough care plan. which took hours to complete. Now, Coming into practice, especially in long-term care, that has become a thing of the past. It's not applicable to practice. So what you find out is that there's someone dedicated to doing the care plans. And I think also that that difference has also been regarding the, um, the different um, scope of practices. In some states, the LPN has very limited scope and the RN has and the work with the guidance or under the direction of the RN. So when it comes to care planning, for example, there's situations where we have um, the RN do the role, but there isn't any feedback where the LPN goes to actually review that plan of care. So like I said, um, I'll give an example. So usually you would want the nurse to go into the care plan and at least envision what plan of care they have to give to this particular patient. So let's give you a very typical example. So a nurse would have a patient who is a very high risk for falls. The um, facility, the ADON, the unit manager, or the DON, or even an RN will put in a very comprehensive fall prevention care plan. Now, say the patient has been diagnosed to have a very rare condition such that they have to wear this particular, um, I always call it my story, the particular red shoe to keep them safe. And mm -hmm. we always document it very beautifully in that care plan. So let's just happen. Let's just say that the patient falls. The nurse goes to attend to the patient. And obviously there's some problems. So the nurse will transfer the patient to the ER, say for a hip fracture or something like that. The patient undergoes surgery. I'm just saying that this happens, okay? The patient undergoes hip fractures, goes undergoes oral surgery, and unfortunately has complications and doesn't make it. Guess what? 
they are going to come back to you. And when they come back to you, they are going to interrogate you and they're going to interview you as the nurse. They are going to ask one question. Did she have her red shoe? That shoe was supposed to be that magic shoe that would keep her from falling. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. So if you say you don't know, then you are liable because it's negligent of care. But here is a situation where the nurse wasn't the one that put in the plan of care and has no idea, right? So if we are to bring, well, it's okay to help nurses, LPNs to do the care plans, but we also have to have a system or a feedback system where it would require the LPNs or to, be, to review the care plans or we bring the communication at hurdles or, or things like that to get the, all nurses and all uh, certified nurse assistants to be in on the plan of care. Mm-hmm. So that gap in how we are trying to work around our workload is causing more harm than good in some instances. And it is time for us to take a critical look at how we are doing things because yes, we are trying to alleviate their, uh, their workload, but in doing that, we are making the nurses less, um, we are not practicing like we are supposed to as nurses. We are doing everything wrong. So those gaps have to be kind of um, looked at from right from academia and also how we train nurses and how we do things in long-term care. And until those things are done, those gaps are going to persist. And so mm. that is one of the things that I have noticed. Yes. Yeah. And if only we did have magic red shoes that kept people from falling, <laughs> that would be awesome. But I like how you use that metaphor. And do you think part of it, in, in terms of like, I'm thinking about nursing culture and nursing school culture. You know how when you're in nursing school, you're in your ADN program or you're in your BSN or maybe even LPN program, and you have to write a care plan for a patient, right? First, you're doing it for fictitious patients. And then when you get an actual clinical assignment, you're actually writing out a care plan. And I remember like back in the late nineties in nursing school, you know, we would all roll our eyes about the care plan because you had to keep writing them out and, you know, you had to write out, you know, outcome and, you know, all these different steps. And in a sense, it feels like in nursing school, care plans almost become like this, this rote thing we do without even thinking about them. It's just, it's like we do it kind of blind almost, and it becomes just a habit, but it's not a habit where we're actually thinking critically. We're just writing them out because we're supposed to. Is there part of it, You do you think that we get sort of part of it is we get kind of jaded and, you know, we think, Oh, care plan, you know, and we tend to just glaze over and we don't even look at it anymore. Is that just part of it? Habitual, habitual um, way of behaving at work. Yeah, that is, you've really said it too. So uh-huh. at some point we had, when we were going to school, now it's changed. We had even flashcards with all yes. the interventions like that. So it was like something that you just wrote and you just made sure your paper looked great so that you could get your grades, um, 100% grade for your care plans, right? Exactly, yes. They did not, they, they, they did not teach us, um, I, for example, I'm going to talk from my experience. Whoever taught me the nursing process they didn't do a fantastic job. Like how I understand the nursing process now, I wish that when I was in my bachelor's program, I did understand it that deep mm-hmm. and looking at it more like a critical thinking 
tool than it is more like a work assignment or a task. If you start to see the nursing process as a task, that is different. But if you see it as the way of our being, the way of our doing, the way of nursing, that is different. And currently, that clinical judgment model that the NCLEX is adopting now in terms of starting this new generation on next-gen questions is a step in the right direction. But we have to bring it home where the nurse actually sees herself actually using the nursing process as her way of being in any setting that she may find herself, be it long-term care, acute care, home care, or whatever they will be. So I think that our approach to teaching the nursing process, if we're still doing it, should change. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's true. And, and I have another question about long-term care and long-term care culture. Um, you know as well as I do. I mean, you you have a doctorate in nursing, so you've been around, right? I mean, you've seen a lot of what happens out in the nursing world. And I've talked about this on the show before, how there are certain nurses, not, a, not everyone, but there are certain nurses, let's say, who work in critical care, right, in the acute care hospital, who they see... They look down on med surge. They definitely look down on school nursing or home health. And they definitely look down on long-term care as, you know, not real nursing. You know, it's not like the adrenaline-soaked nursing of critical care or the emergency department. Do you think, just from your experience and observations, that nurses in long-term care maybe have a little there's a little bit of self-esteem damage because they feel that other nurses and the more sexy specialties don't see them as being that important. Do you think there's some something to going on there? Yes. So yeah. if you constantly are told that you're not good enough, what does it do to self-esteem? Yeah. It does now we want to know why we don't have nurses looking to long-term care for as an as a career path, mm-hmm. right? And it all stems from those kind of unspoken um kind of reactions that yes. we get. Yes. Because there's I can't tell you how many times that uh, we get patients from acute care coming in with stage two, three ulcers, and nobody listens to us. But when we take one patient with a pressure ulcer, it's just like the end of the world. Like the long-term care facilities are not doing their So they bring us patients like we don't know what we are doing. So that kind of stigma has run through for years and we are mm. paying price. And when something happens in long-term care, the way the media will blow it out of proportion, like everything else, also hasn't helped us at all, not to mention the amount of regulations that we have. But let me just give you the scenario and let let the audience judge for themselves who of these two nurses would they trust their loved ones to. So if you were a nurse and you work in a place where you have no physician on site, a patient's condition changes and you are able to, to identify the change and call and give the assessment findings and help the physician who is off-site to be able to understand what is going on and give a treatment, a diagnosis and a treatment modality. As compared to someone who has the, the doctor right next to them, 
that when somebody is going south, they intervene, yes, but there's a doctor that comes in right away and performs and provides the treatment modality. Among these two nurses, who works with autonomy and who is supposed to be skilled enough to be able to um, take care of anyone? It's certainly the nurse who doesn't have, who works autonomously. In long-term care, the nurse pronounces death. That doesn't happen in, in acute care settings. For you to be able to know your skill set enough so that you can pronounce death accurately, I think that should tell you a lot about the nurse that works in long-term care. So the skill set that we need as long-term care nurses is unbelievable. And for us to rise up to that occasion and perform, that should be applauded, not to mention the many times we have successes and the quality of care that we provide. Yes, there might be bad nuts out there, but that is not the majority at all. And considering how many times we, we interact with the patients and what we actually live with, we have patients with behavioral dysfunctions who are always on the edge. We have patients with dementia that we have to anticipate their needs and provide the right care with based on our assessments, right? So I honestly think that we don't give ourselves as long-term care nurses much credit. Mm. We have to be able to stand up and make great arguments as to why skill and the skill set in long-term care should be, should be outstanding, right? So every nurse who wants to really learn good assessment skills should start off in long-term care as compared to what is currently being done, mm-hmm. where um, fundamentals, uh, are sent like fresh men are sent to um, long-term care to learn the basis of nursing, meaning uh, transferring, uh, bed, bath, and all of that. Assess- that is not enough. We have to start bringing in nurses, junior, uh, who are in the third years, the final years, so that they can also see long-term care as a career path. I, I was running a 60-bed subacute unit, and that was very robust. We had a lot of different message. Um, we had anything from cancer, hip replacements, name it, cardiac um, bypass surgery. We had patients who had just like five days post-op, and we're taking care of them in long-term care. Now, don't tell me that that is not a place where nurses will gain a lot of skill. You know, let me give you an example. I used to be a clinical instructor and I used to take nurses to a hospital um, for their rotations on the weekends. I had students who really were looking to have that experience of giving an IM injection. So that was one of their goals for that clinical rotation. And I'm telling you, I could not get any instance where I could have these students experience that because the hospitals had moved to IV push and IV medications. And so very little IMs were performed. We had a lot of sub cubes or sub, uh, subcutaneous injections, but not the intramuscular injections, which I call the IMs. So they didn't get that. And that really was mind-blowing because in long-term care, we get that. We get that experience because, again, we tend to use that <laughs> through seven IMs we give, mm-hmm. right? So they would have gotten those skill sets. But for some reason, I don't know why people think that long-term care is just not enough for them to really, uh, and until we embrace that and make a young and upcoming nurses see the potential and the skill set that they can gain from long-term care, we cannot attract them. And we have to start relooking 
at bringing long-term care nurses, I mean nurses to long-term care to learn all these great skills so that they can become great nurses. Yes. Well, well said. And as the country, let's just talk about the United States, as the country ages, it's not that long-term care is going to become less important. It's going to become more important as the country continues to age and we have more and more people retiring and we have, you know, a vast growing number of people of elderly age who need care. So when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk a little bit about the book. I'd like to talk about your, your entrepreneurial endeavors and some other aspects of why long-term care is so, so very important to you and what else we need to do in order to elevate it and have it be valued the way it should be valued. So hang in there and we'll be right back with the second half of episode 442 of the Nurse Keith Show with nurse, author, consultant, and entrepreneur, Sylvia Abakeway. Welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Sylvia Abeque, PhD, long-term care nurse and advocate and, and champion for long-term care and long-term care nursing. So Sylvia, your book is really wonderful. And I think it should really become a text for schools where nurses are learning the basics and they're doing clinicals on long-term care. And it can also show people that long-term care has value and that it's something we shouldn't just pass off as, oh, that's what nurses do who can't get a job in the ED. But they're nurses who really care and take care of our elders. And, you know, all of us are going to be elders someday, right? So you have a little passage that I'd love for you to read from the book. Would you be willing to honor us that with, with a, little, a little reading? Yeah, so this passage goes down to the need for uh, training the workforce. And um, I want to address an issue here. So I did mention it in my introduction. Okay. I said, um, many facilities require the nurse educator to perform a dual role with infection control, as an added responsibility. Now, both positions should be distinct full-time jobs if they are to be effective. The nurse educator's role. She should collect data, facility data through audits and reports. She should analyze the data and then determine areas where improvements can be made. They should then use the current clinical evidence to develop a curriculum to train the staff. Now, because facilities lack trained educators, the nursing directors often manage this role and they are often overloaded and do not dedicate time to staff education. Therefore, a facility educator is a vital component of the clinical team. So I wrote this to emphasize um, the need. And in fact, when I started writing this, it was just when COVID struck. And so um, I was, I even had this vision before it's now mandated that every facility should have an infection preventionist. But now what I'm realizing since I'm consulting is that the role of the staff development coordinator has been taken away and has been replaced by the role of the infection preventionist. Again, the infection preventionist is supposed to ensure that 
um, infection practices are up to code and up to standard in long-term care facilities. However, that role in itself, in my opinion, is a full-time role when it comes to monitoring, surveillance, auditing, and teaching on infection control practices. But we should not also lose sight of the fact that general education in clinical core processes is vital for the nurse to flourish, to empower them, and also to enhance safety and quality care. And so those two roles, it's time for us to distinctively distinct them and make the nurse um, staff development or nurse educator a separate role and an infection preventionist a, a separate role. And there's a lot to be gained when we do that. And I can't, I can't stress on that enough because we keep forgetting that the role sets are different. They are different. And sometimes people ask me, oh, you can't do infection control for 40 hours. Yes, you can. Because infection control is constant surveillance and monitoring. If you do it well, you 40 hours will not even be enough because you're looking at vaccinations, staff vaccinations, work. You're looking at so many different things. When you talk about education, absolutely, there's so much. It, they should work together. The infection preventionist and the staff educator should work together. But there are some things that are solely nurse educator role, skill sets, right? A new diagnosis comes into the building and you need to refresh the staff on some of the interventions they need to do, right? Especially when you are running a subacute. A new uh, instrument comes, somebody comes in with a rare pacemaker or something you haven't seen, a new technology. It's a staff educator or the nurse facilitator's role to understand the mechanisms of its action and train the staff, not to mention regular daily work processes. Those two roles are distinct, and I can't stress that enough. But so far, that's, for me, is a big thing that I really want facilities orientation should be done by the nurse educator, not the infection preventionist, right? Or not the HR. The HR can do onboarding, but the orientation of the clinical team should solely be a nurse educator role, right? And so these two roles should be, and I'm really advocating that they be distinct because now what I'm seeing is, is different. <laughs> and Sylvia, have you seriously, in a long-term care facility, seen a director of nursing acting as the preventionist and the educator at the same time? Oh, yes. That's, you're looking at one. I'm You're looking, looking at, at one. Okay. How, how, when how I is first that, started off, yes, when I first started off as a, a, a director of nurses, when I told you of what had happened two days in my role, that same role I was in, I did not have an ADON at the time. I did not have a staff development coordinator at the time. I was it. I was it. So I was in charge of infection preventionists. Prevention at the time, if there was anything like that, I was also the ADON in itself. I was also the um, what start development coordinator. I was everything, right? So it's I'm not even going to say someone. I'm using my own personal experience. I've been it, and so it tells you 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 have no life if you have to do these three roles, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 difficult. And I know it's because they would say that we can't hire some development coordinators, we can't find them. You know, that has always been the thing. But if you create um, an environment where they can grow and you can nurture them, you can train the staff within to rise up to this role. And that's exactly what I did. 
I delegated. I brought in the nurses that were on duty. I brought them in. I trained them and I let them do things to help me, auditing. I would bring them in. I showed them how to do them and let them do it and then I oversee it. I empowered the nurses. For the first time, they felt valued. They felt they were doing things that they otherwise would not do because they were used to the med cut and they're just... Uh, giving out meds. Mm -hmm. But when I started to bring them in, thank God I had a very wonderful administrator who understood. I said, I don't have an ADUN. Can you get me? Can I schedule an extra nurse? And then I bring this nurse into the office and I started to train them. And guess what? That nurse rose to become a supervisor for the weekends. It's You have to use what you have within your building. You have to use what you have. And so if you need a staff educator, you need to train one, right? And then hopefully they can do the role. So honestly, anyway. <laughs> okay. If if we want long-term care nurses to feel more feel more valued, we train them, we we lift them up, we we boost their confidence, we we encourage them, you know, to grow and to evolve and to to look at the nursing process and think critically. But we also have to pay them well. So in long-term care, you know, the general opinion out there is that you can't make as much in long-term care as you can in other specialties. So is is it a chicken and the egg situation or is it that, you know, is it that are facilities not valuing enough and not paying them enough because they can get away with it? Or does Medicare and Medicaid not reimburse the long-term care facilities enough so that that keeps their income down and they can't pay the nurses as much? What's the What are the major factors that, let's say, keep the salaries lower than we would like them to be? Because obviously, long-term care nurses deserve to earn a good salary. So, um, like you're saying, it's not one thing, but I'll mm -hmm. say that, yes, salary is important and yes, work environment and work, it's all so important and I'm going to tell you why. So, for the longest time, our peers in AQK were getting so much more money than we were getting, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, <laughs> if you even tried as a long-term care nurse to apply to AQK, just because you had long-term care on your resume, you hardly ever got looked at. You weren't even called to even come for an interview just because you had been in long-term care. It's a thing that was yes. not spoken, but I'm going to tell you that. When I was in long-term care, at some point I was trying to apply and nobody would even look at me even with a bachelor's in medicine, right? Thank God they didn't because <laughs> hmm. I, I really like where I am. Anyway, so um, that has been one of the things. We are really underpaid. And it's only because I think it's systemic. It's not just uh, facilities to be blamed, mm -hmm. but we also have to look at the whole structure in the United States coming out from CMS. So let me just say something here. So CMS has defined um, long-term care. I mean, we, we have something called what they call custodial care. Custodial care is actually um, defined such that our long-term um, patients, not the skilled or the acute ones, that the long ones, those who come in there to make long-term care their forever homes, 
really go under the uh, bracket of custodial care where we do almost all the they are completely dependent for ADLs and all of that. You should at least have two ADLs to qualify for to be considered as a custodial care. Now, the reimbursement for those group of nurses, I mean, sorry, for those group of patients is at a much lower rate than when they come in through the subacute or the acute or skilled care, because the argument is that the skill sets that we use in taking care of um, the um, subacutes are higher than we would the uh, long termers or those who are under custodial care, and that the, there's this saying since I started long term care that this is their home. And so sometimes they say, oh, even they're in their home, do you assess their do you assess your vital signs? That's what it's the thing. So sometimes assessment is required once a week. Okay. Now this is a dementia patient who doesn't talk and can't tell you when they are feeling under the weather or when they are sick. When I go into that room to administer the meds, I am directly assessing them and seeing if there's any change, right? Because mm -hmm. I have to really make sure that I catch the pneumonia before it becomes a pneumonia, right? Or I catch the UTI before it blows out to become sepsis, right? Every day I am doing that, but I never get paid or I don't get credit for it because of the way the system has been featured. So they are not paid us for the amount and the skill sets that we give to these custodial care patients. Hmm. So because of that, the reimbursement to the facilities are lower and therefore facilities also is still a business. And you, you have to know that they want to make some profit too, except those that are non-profits. Non right. So yes, the amount they give us is not really reflective of the case that we give. And I also want you to know that that CMS regulation has also resulted in the type of care that we give because Although we have the subacutes who are the skill set and we have to give them a different um, level of care, the same nurses work with the subacutes and the same nurses work with the long-term care. So if you are telling that nurse that it's okay to assess once a week for the uh, long-termers, the same nurse you are now expecting them to provide QID um, or three times a day assessment, that habit has been formed among the nurses that it's hard to get them to assess the subacutes as they should. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Yeah. So those are some of the things that really has crept into our uh, system and has, has crippled us. And so the pace raise should start from the top. And also that environment where they nurture you is not there. In long-term care, there's, um, there's this, um, you don't get oriented. You come in, you get a general orientation and they emphasize the regulatory um, things like abuse, mm -hmm. dementia training, those are the emphasis. So when you come in and you're a new nurse, for example, you don't get all that extra training as to how the MDS works, how the care planning process is like discharge planning, even RM pronouncement, nothing like that happens. Mm -hmm. And you're asked to go to the floor and shadow a nurse. If you go on that floor and that nurse is a bully or that nurse doesn't care about you, that's your end, right? Sometimes even asking a fellow for help can be seen as a nuisance because they are already struggling with their workload. And so then they have a new grad who they have to train or a new nurse who they have to show around. And that sometimes comes off as a border to them. 
there are great nurses out there, but sometimes you can't help, but sometimes you feel like the new nurses bother. So I have nurses who have quit after two days of coming into the job. Two and days. Then, two days. Wow. Two okay. Days. And then when you call them, they then would tell, they don't come down to tell you that, oh, I had this instant, but then they tell that, you know what? There's no support. I had nurses cry. Okay, I go up to the unit and they are crying in the, the their mindset, the stress of the job and the lack of support in their system mm. is crippling. And so if we don't address that part of it and we want to improve staffing or to attract nurses, that wouldn't happen. And so it starts from orientation where we start to have team building activities, self-care. And activities to help us get to know each other before we get on the unit. Now they've reverted to the use of online electronic devices. So you sit behind a computer and you do training. You don't have anybody to talk to. When we first started, even 20 years ago, it wasn't like this. You go into a classroom in person, you had peers, you could bounce things off. So before you came to the floor, you had developed some rapport among yourself so that when you went in to ask questions, it was well received. Now you don't have that. And you just have modules to kind of go through on the computer. And all of these things that we have done in the hope of trying to minimize workload and maybe cut costs or whatever it was, it has now come to bite us in a very big way. And so it's mm -hmm. now time for us as an institution, as an organization, as a setting to look back now the pay increases are happening because obviously across all healthcare settings, nurses are being reimbursed better because of COVID and now the flight of nurses from these settings, going to agencies, travel nurses is also attracting them to actually um, improve the income. So we are seeing that, but it's still, <laughs> and let me tell you something. Sometimes it's not all about the money. The money is one thing, but it's not, it's just being respected for who you are and for the value you bring to an institution. And mm -hmm. they should stop the pieces and give them more valuable appreciation because that's all we get. Pizza night, then they bring a pizza. Right. Thank you for the efficiency free service, pizza. Yeah, we, we need more than pizza. Exactly. Yeah. More than pizza. <laughs> So until they change this like that. I wrote an article recently about how valuing nurses is more about pizza and free tote bags or coffee mugs. That that yes, that's nice, but there's a lot more to it than that. And when when organizations lean on, you know, okay, we're gonna have pizza night and everyone's gonna feel great because we brought you some food, you know, that's it's such a band-aid. And so you're, I mean. Obviously, like I said earlier, you're a champion for long-term care. You really, really care about it deeply. You've written a book about it, and now you consult about it. And can you just briefly describe your consultancy and what you do at NSD Expert? And do you go into facilities? And what do you offer when you do so? So NSD Expert started in 2020, and my 
whole goal is to improve care through training of uh, nurses, LPNs, and RNs. So what I do is that I go in and I do ad hoc training. So say a, a facility is struggling with a particular thing, like um, maybe admissions, care plan, or grievances, or something they've been tagged mm -hmm. on, I can go in and do a workshop. I don't do online. I do workshops. I bring in um, at the end of my session with the with the group of nurses, they should leave competent in that particular skill set that I was called to train them on. That is one. The second thing I also do is that I am uh, I do orientation programs, and this is something that I'm I'm struggling to get them to really hand me over their orientation, which I'm going to do for about eight. Uh, five days to eight days program. So what I do is that I go through everything that the long-term care nurse has to know, starting from the mission and vision of an organization and its importance up to the point where I teach them how to manage falls, abuse, everything, the sentinel events, elopements, bends, everything, and care planning processes, admission, discharges, I teach them everything. So they come to you with the skill set based on the CMS regulations. And then I also bring you their competencies because I also do the skills competencies with it so that I give you a folder for each employee that you bring to me. So that's one. Um, in next January, we are starting our uh, new grad residency program where I am going to, I'm working with, um, I'm trying to get some schools to buy into that so that I can get um, the new grads to come through our program to get trained, um, everything long-term care. Um, I use um, active learning. I use gaming, like Kahoot, Mentimeter, all those kind of gaming um, to help to hone in the information. I do role plays and we do workshops. So I have like for say admission, I have a whole discharge summary that is very comprehensive. And I teach them how to do med reconciliation. I teach them how to uh, transcribe orders, how to write orders, and also how to do the care plans and write good care plans that are individualized care plans. So those are some of the things that NSD expert does. And if there's once or twice I've been called in to consult about their work process. So I look at the work processes that they have and try to see how best I can align them such that it will ease the workflow of the nurses. So those things too that mm. I do. Yes. So if if you're a nurse out there listening and you have an area of passion and expertise like Sylvia does, you know, starting a consultancy and going out to organizations and offering these sorts of programs is something that a lot of nurses are starting to do out there because there's space for it. And there's space for people like you, Sylvia, who have an expertise and a passion. And organizations, some organizations, are really hungry for that kind of help. So I think being a nurse entrepreneur out there offering these types of services is really wonderful. And people can go to NSD expert and expert is spelled X P E R T. So nsdexpert.com. And you're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and people can find you Sylvia on LinkedIn and all the links will be in the show notes. So people can connect with you. And before we go, I have four quick lightning round questions. I ask all my guests, are you up for, playing along for a few minutes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the first of the four questions is simply, how do you define success either personally or professionally? So I'll say success is um, 
be fulfilling your your life's goal or your life's vision. So for me, um, being able or being fulfilled or going after what I'm passionate about and what I've, I love to do, I love to do, for me is success. So nothing, it's not about money, it's about fulfillment for mm-hmm. me. Yes, yeah, so I would say that's success. I like that. Yeah. Good, okay. Number two, could you name or describe a person who's truly inspired you in your life? They could be living or dead, famous, or just someone who you know in your personal life who none of us would know of? So I would say it's my mom. Mm. Unfortunately, she hasn't, she's passed away since 2020. Mm. And um, every time I talk about it, my heart sinks. But um, when I was going through those um, ups and downs, when I first started my role as a director of nurses, um, she was my my source of strength. Um, she, I would always talk to her. Um, is that true? What's up? Or she would always call me every day, asking how I was doing. And one thing that she always kept saying is, Sylvia, you got to train the nurses. You got to train them. And I would say that she herself was a nurse too. She was a pediatric nurse. Um, and she also was an entrepreneur. Mm. So she, well, she was a nurse and she had a bakery also. So that's probably where I take most of my um, entrepreneurial um, skills from. But um, she's one person that every time I get an opportunity to talk about her, I do. Mm. Because um, she's such a rare kind. She's a woman of virtue. She's just, a, she's a mother. She's a friend. She's she's everything. That's yes. lovely. And did she immigrate to the U.S. from Ghana as well, or did she stay in Ghana? She stayed in Ghana, but she was, uh, she often came to visit and helped me out for maybe three months, four months, and then she would go back. Um, the last time she came was my graduation from uh, my PhD program, and that was the last time I saw wow. her. Um, yeah, I'm sure she's yeah. very, very proud of you. Okay, now the third question, penultimate question. Is there a book or movie, not necessarily an absolute favorite, but just something that's really had a impact on the way you think, the way you live your life, the way you approach your work, your relationships, anything like that at all? Yeah, so uh, the book that comes to mind is The Energy Bus. So The Energy Bus was written by John Gordon, and it's a book that um, has 10 rules, and it's talking about how you have to incorporate positive energy in your organization as a leader. So he's saying that you are the, you are in control of your bus and you decide where you want to steer the bus when you get up every morning. If you want to have a positive attitude, that is how you have to start your day. If you want to have a negative attitude, that is you have to start. But I tend to want to use that positive energy to, to direct everything that I do. Because when you... Uh, have for positive energy. Everybody around you feels that magnet. When I come into the room, I always make sure that, you know, I am in the room in a positive way. And I think that has also helped me as a leader and has also helped me to really connect in a very special way with my staff so that I can get them to do even difficult tasks without them realizing that the task is difficult. Because I come to them with that kind of energy, that positivity. And I think that is a good um, approach to, um, or good attitude to Mm. have as a leader. Yeah, Yeah. the energy bus, um, 10 rules to fuel your life, work and team with positive energy by John Gordon. I see he also has the energy bus field guide 
And then he also has the Energy Bus for Kids, a story about staying positive and overcoming challenges. So definitely worth checking out. So thanks for calling our attention to that. And finally, the last question is, if you were named Queen of the World tomorrow, and you had ultimate power to do anything you wanted, what would be the very, very first thing you'd like to do to improve the lives of your subjects? Just the, your first act as queen. First act as queen. This is a difficult question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the act as queen, um, I, would, um, I would love to create an environment that is very, very welcoming and very inclusive. An environment that uh, we don't see each other's faults and we see everybody's um, positive mm. nature. I want an environment where support becomes a, a, a buzzword, not a word that is frowned upon. Um, I want support to be um, front and center in that world that I'm in so that we can all lift the, the, the weaker ones, the stronger ones will lift the weaker ones. And the weaker ones certainly have a lot also to offer. So together they can live in, 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 a, in they can live mutually together mm. or else it's symbiotic. If it's, uh, I'm using scientific terms, um, we all benefit from each other. Mm. That's the type of queen I want to be. And that's the environment I want to create. You would be an awesome queen of the world. You would be great. Well, Sylvia Bekwe, you're so passionate and so brilliant and so caring. And obviously you've done a lot of great work in the world and, you know, your mom is proud of you for a reason and you're going to do a whole lot more good work in the world as the years go by. So thank you so much for being on the show. I encourage people to check your website, buy your book and support the work you're doing. So thank you so much. You're really wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com or actually they'll be on any app where you happen to be listening. And if you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode and you want to take some inspired action in relation to your career, mention the show to me and you can get 10% off your first coaching package if you feel like you could use a little bit of extra support from me, Nurse Keith. We are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com and we are adroitly produced by the inimitable Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Helen Keller. The best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my new friend and colleague, Sylvia Bakeway, who's saying goodbye from... Holden, Massachusetts. All right. Thank you, Sylvia. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. Mm